Welcome to Armchair Generals, a podcast about geopolitics, international relations, and America's place in the world. I'm Garrett. With me in the armchair, as always, is Andrew. This week on Armchair Generals, I want to cover a few things. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine and the counteroffensive in Kherson, but also what's going on in the world. In particular, Pakistan, in the news, but for all the wrong reasons. Hungary, reaching out to Russia to build some more nuclear reactors. Iran's shenanigans at sea. And Gorbachev's passing and the dichotomy of how he's viewed in the West and in Russia. To kick it off, let's start with Ukraine. Kursan. This counteroffensive has been discussed, promoted for weeks and months. It's happening now. There isn't a ton of information that I can find about how they're actually doing. It seems like they've made advances on a pretty wide arc, uh, going down from the coast up to uh, kind of the extent of the Russian position across the Dnieper River. Uh, it seems like they've they've been advancing, but it seems to be in tens of kilometers, maybe, but that's about it. Um, and it's really impressive to me that so much information is being uh, withheld and to a degree, operational security seems to be maintained. Yeah, they're definitely very disciplined in information sharing. Uh, I've been looking at some, trying to find some open source intelligence about what exactly they're doing across the Nipir. Um, basically, all I've been able to find is strikes on troop, Russian troop ferries across the river, most probably to reduce the uh, effectiveness of any Russian counterattack to slow the advance. But yeah, they've been exercising a lot of discipline I've been I've been fairly um, bullish on Ukrainian success across the river. I think they are motivated. I think the the use of HIMARS to disrupt um, Russian supply lines and communication lines throughout. Um, I'm hopeful. Uh, I also saw the <clears throat> polling released by the Lebedev Center. Effectively, the only polling operation inside of Russia is showing some softening in public support for this special military operation. So, you know, not nearly enough to actually impact the ability of the Russian state to continue the war, but any movement uh, in Russian public sentiment could have impacts on Russian force regeneration, could have impacts on how what they're able to do and how long they're able to do it. It's interesting. I I wasn't as bullish on the offense, counteroffensive. I had a I thought they could take what was you know, they could push the Russian forces that are west of the Dnieper River up to the river and potentially over. I don't foresee them being able to go significantly further. Uh but I could totally be wrong. What do you think the limiting factor is on their advance? Getting over the river uh, and manpower. So the Russians are going to be dug in on the eastern bank as well as the western. But they're going to be dug in on the eastern. And just as the Russians are 
having a hard time reinforcing the Western Bank under artillery fire from Ukraine. The Ukrainians would have to advance across the river under artillery fire from the Russians. And I don't believe the Ukrainians have the uh, resources and capabilities to do that. It's very different than um, a bunch of fighters in, you know, SUVs, regular civilian vehicles, being able to mass in an area and fight back. Uh, you need significant heavy equipment to build pontoon bridges, rebuild the bridges that exist there, all while under artillery fire. And that's that's something I haven't seen any information supporting the Russian or the Ukrainian army's ability to do that. I see. Yeah, I mean, certainly infrastructure is necessary to cross a river. Rivers are defensive, often cocomitate with defensive lines for a reason. They often overlay uh, a defensive line or a, or a fortification because they are difficult to cross. Do you know how wide the river is uh, overall? Do you know its average width? I don't know its average width, but I know there are places where it's over a half mile wide. Okay, so a significant effort to be crossed. Yes. Not, not easily crossed. Not easily crossed. I, I could foresee... Um, I mean, this works... To, in a sense, to the Ukrainians' advantage in the short term, because now the Russians are having to drag equipment and troops across. But it also, I imagine, is psychologically tough for the for the Russians, because if they're stuck, they have their troops stuck on the, the western side of the river. And as they come under more and more pressure, if they get cut off from the the north of the the area, which I think is where most of the pontoon bridges and, and still functioning bridges are located, they are going to want to not get caught and stuck on that side. Yeah, it's an envelopment. So they're going to have to uh, figure out a way out. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's why the Ukrainians have moved on the axis of events that they have. Um, basically doing a pincer where they have a, a pretty robust push in the, in the south and the north. And from the north, that follows the highway down. And so if they can follow the highway down, they're going to start cutting off the Russians from their, their, their escape. And, you know, given the, the, uncertainty about morale levels in the Russian army we've seen throughout this fight, uh, this war, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets to, if the Ukrainians advance to a certain point, there just, there isn't just a mass exodus of Russian troops uh, to or avoid mass, encirclement. Or a mass surrender. Or mass surrender. I mean, from a political standpoint, mass surrender would be amazing for the Ukrainians. Yeah, it would be a, a huge coup, a huge propaganda victory. And, and absolutely horrendous for the Russians. Um, I've heard there's something like 20, 30,000 Russian troops on the western side of the Dnieper. So, you know, even if you you capture half of them, ten, you know, a third, uh, that's, that's a lot of troops. Can Ukraine absorb that many POWs? Does Ukraine send those POWs and some have some agreement to send them to Poland out of the war zone? 
or or Romania or Germany or or do those or do they house them somewhere? Who knows where? Or do they repatriate them? They couldn't possibly repatriate them, right? As you know, Russia has been effectively abducting people out of Ukraine. They've been taking Ukrainian citizens and relocating them as quote unquote refugees or stateless persons um, throughout both Russia proper and within Ukraine. So, you know, what what happens to these POWs in a world where the Russians are also doing these things to Ukrainian civilians? I think the next two weeks in particular, offensives burn up materials, right? So just the artillery bombardment I've heard is is significantly higher than the average day over the last you know month or two. So we're going to end up with uh, some interesting things to discuss over the coming weeks. And at the same time, we're, this whole offensive is time limited. We have maybe six, eight weeks before winter sets in and everything gets too wet and muddy to move off-road in this part of Ukraine. And so folks will be stuck on the roads. And that's uh, not where, you know, a, a shoot and scoot military wants to be. Yeah, it reads as maybe the Ukrainians want to force the Russians back east across the river, secure a front line that tracks along the Dnieper, um, to and secure, probably help secure routes towards Odessa to reinforce the defense of, the, of their only major port city that they have access to, their only deep water port. So before winter, and then and then winter will probably be limited skirmishes, maybe special operations forces, uh, attacks across the river, but and then regular artillery exchanges. So yeah, are are we going to see my dream of a of a big mobile sweeping force engagements uh, across eastern Ukraine? No, um, we're not. We're probably going to see a more limited. You're probably right. More limited uh, attack up to the river because the river is a, the easiest point with which to defend. And if you control the approaches uh, across the river, then you can stymie any Russian advances along that axis. But even if they just the Ukrainians just succeed at that, that's a huge win, right? Kherson's the only major city that really was lost without much of a fight. And it was lost in the beginning of the war. Just a few weeks in, it was completely pacified. So any ability of the Ukrainians to take something back like that and just getting up to the Dnieper put significant pressure on on the Russians because if they can cross the river and they only have to go 50 kilometers and you can put serious pressure on that land bridge between Russia and Crimea and if they're able to do that uh, and see stop supplies going in and then at some point if they destroy that Kerch bridge the only alternative is to get supplies in by boat and based on the performance of the russian black sea fleet to this point that feels like a nearly impossible task for them the the lack of initiative and the just overall fearfulness of the russian 
naval forces in the conflict um, are really illuminating as to what what their capabilities are. They're basically staying far enough offshore when they even leave port to uh, to avoid attack. They're effectively useless. Yes, and when they are in port, their headquarters gets attacked. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. It's interesting to me to see this because the Russian Navy has received significant investment over the last 15 years. And, you know, if this is what you get out of it, you know, I don't think Russia's going to be exporting much uh, naval, naval, naval technology. Uh, and it's an injury. You raise another interesting point uh, parallel to huge investments in the Russian army. A lot of this went a lot of this. These investments just went to graft lined you know, admiral's pockets and and big, you know, industrialists' pockets uh, without much to show for it. Well, I'm still shocked with when you see the money that they supposedly invested, they still don't have the ability to build um, carriers yet. They don't have because they lost the the slips in which many of these the hulls were built uh, when the collapse of the Soviet Union and they haven't built any. So it's surprising to me that um, we, the Russians are in this situation in a certain sense, given the money and how authoritarian the state seems to be. But Well, speaking of the collapse of the Soviet Union, boom, transition. Should we move on Let's to our good friend Mikhail? Gorbachev. He passed away. Um. You know, in the West, revered for ending the Cold War. In Russia, depending on who you talk to, not so much. And obviously, Putin's not a fan. His passing is receiving no state funeral, and Putin is not attending the funeral. There's a lot to unpack there, but just right off the bat, what are your thoughts? Well, he's sort of a tragic comic figure, in my view, because, I mean, the idea that he sought to end the Cold War or break up the Soviet Union or create a any kind of liberal democratic state in in Russia uh, is is just a, a misreading of what he was doing. He was trying to maintain a creaky aging Soviet state. And he was pulling on the levers he had available to him and I believe was a man completely out of step with the historical moment. He, you know, Glasnost and Perestroika, while we, re we read them about them in the West as these, you know, the these moments of awakening, these moments of reconciliation, both inside of the Soviet Empire and with the West, that was not the purpose of them. The purpose of them was to maintain communist legitimacy. But events were, were running away from him faster than he could catch up to them. And instead of being a man driving history, I believe he was a man just trying to keep the car on the road. Like, which ultimately, perhaps that was the best outcome one, one could expect. Um, the Soviet state had been in turmoil decline for a decade prior to its ultimate collapse in 91. And you can look at Afghanistan, you can look at um, the pr productivity of uh, Soviet workers, you can look at the 
aging military, just so, so at so many levels, Soviet power was in decline. And, and while we in the West couldn't see it, they knew, you know, the, so the heads of the Soviet state knew that they were losing. He did, he did what he thought would help by opening up, you know, pursuing Glasnost, allowing people to express their opinions, he believed that that would ultimately lead to increased productivity and increased efficiency inside the Soviet economy, which would stabilize things. It didn't, that's not what happened. What actually happened is people began to talk about how terrible living under communist rule was and how, um, you know, there were the gulags and the, it ended up robbing the state of legitimacy instead of shoring that legitimacy up. I think Glasnost and Perestroika were kind of the dying attempts to release pressure. This, these were these were pressure relief valves. Just hoping that if we give them something, we'll still there'll be something to 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 govern in the next nine ten months. I I think I think he had an idea that this was not going to end well. Um. And you, you know, you say pressure release. And if your point of reference for, for the state in collapse is the Russian revolution of, of 1917, 1918, um, then yeah, you're probably thinking, I got to keep this from ending in unbelievable bloodshed, right? I got to keep this from ending in a putsch that's going to see people being hung in the streets. So you're probably, yeah, you're, you're very right. Release but, valve is an excellent way to you know, describe it. He, I will say, we, we view him well from an outcome that he didn't want, right? Like, right. so we in the West view Gorbachev as someone who should be lauded for how this ended. This isn't how, as you mentioned, this isn't how he wanted it to end, uh, but he's lauded because, like, at the end of the day, he did send tanks into several different Soviet states, but he didn't, in the end, unleash the military on the civilian prop population broadly, especially in Russia. Uh, who knows if that order, if he had given it, would have even been obeyed at that point. Right. I mean, he didn't. Yeah. Lithuania declared independence that he did not send the Soviet army to to for force them to stay in the union. Um, so I think you're right. This ultimately he's, he decided that uh, bloodshed to save Soviet communism was a bargain that was not worth it. Um, and probably because he recognized at the time that there was, there was very little to save at that point. And with that as the backdrop, right. Um, especially at this point in time, it is un I kind of understand Putin's position where it's untenable for him to to uh fet Gorbachev in any way at this point in time. If he didn't have a war in Ukraine, if this was early in his career when he was opening up to the West, he probably would have done something for Gorbachev. But at this point, with the way he's pushed the nationalist ideology in the state. His legitimacy, Putin's legitimacy, is around undoing a wrong. He talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union is the worst thing that's happened. He's a he's a Soviet revanchist. And so he cannot be seen, nor do I think he personally even likes Gorbachev, 
think or 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 push into the public sphere that what Gorbachev did in any way should be lauded or worthy of of anything. I think in Putin's mind, it should have come to that military solution. It should have been forcibly kept together. I think that's exactly right. Forcing it to keep to keep it together. I think he I think Putin believes that the solution to that geopolitical problem was force, but not to keep communism. I think he believed that the Soviet empire, such as it was, was an essential feature of Russia and Russianness and Russia as a as a powerful cultural state. So I don't even see him believing that communism itself needed necessarily to be saved. It was just a vehicle for Russian greatness and the Russian empire. And he he would have been glad to see communism go if it as long as as long as the Russian empire with all its satellite territories stayed intact. So he's an interesting character from that perspective. And I think you're right. I don't think a post-2008 Putin, a post-2007 Putin, uh, can be seen to celebrate any Russian figure who made peace with the West. Yeah, I... You know, it's it's interesting with... All this going on with Russia, Ukraine at the same time, and and just the solidifying of thought process throughout the rest of Eastern Europe. I mean, you look at the Baltics right now, and this is a bit of a tangent, but the Baltics, uh, they've started banning Russian language news. They've been tearing down or blowing up Soviet uh, sculptures. And you end up with this, uh, and, and in normal times, Russia would be threatening them, like, you can't tear down these sculptures, you can't get rid of, you know, you can't deprive your Russian citizen, you know, Russian-speaking citizens of our propaganda. But they can't really right now, because their hands are tied up in Ukraine. So it's interesting, where yeah. this has actually allowed some leeway you know, you hear they're not threatening Sweden, right? Like they're not sweat threatening the rest of uh, NATO to the same degree because they have nothing to threaten with other than nuclear weapons right now because their standing army is really being forced into U the Ukrainian quagmire. Well, there's a lot of other interesting things in the news, and let's just hit a few highlights. So what's going on in the world? Uh, Pakistan. In the news a lot recently for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, be glad you're not in the horror. Exactly. A, uh, you know. We'll start with the polit internal politics side. Uh, former prime minister uh, indicted for terrorism charges and is out on bail. Uh, we think things get bad in our country. That's pretty bad. Um, he's in direct... Uh, conflict with the military and basically the rest of the political structure right now. Um, and in Pakistan, those you do not want to be in opposition to the military. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. I mean, it's not, it's not good. He does seem to have uh, this uncanny ability to revive his political fortunes time and time again. But time will tell. Maybe maybe he's kind of hit the end of the road. Uh, maybe not. 
At the same time, the con- one third of the country of Pakistan is underwater right now. Yeah, a full third. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's shocking to me that how it's even possible. The worst flooding in the history of the recorded history of the country. The recorded history of that country uh, goes back a couple of thousand years. Mm-hmm. So that's incredible. Absolutely. And I saw that it's going to cost over $10 billion. And I thought that number seemed very low. Um, but we'll we'll see. I know they they financially, Pakistan's not in a good place. Their IMF loan, I believe, was paused because they didn't meet financial and technical hurdles. So maybe that will give them some relief if that comes back on. But it's not doesn't look good. And, you know, as I think we know Pakistan is, I don't want to say dysfunctional because it, it somewhat functions, but it's had a lot of pressures recently with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. There's uh, kind of a souring of the relationship with the United States. There's, you know, the continued, uh, I don't know, uh, dislike enmity with with India, who is continuing to grow as a economic might. And that puts Pakistan in a very awkward position where they try and keep up with kind of an old model of government, highly inefficient, highly corrupt. And then they're they're just constantly having internal strife in terrorism and natural disasters. It's um, sometimes it seems amazing that they continue to function as a government. Yeah, our most toxic ally. Yes, Pakistan. Uh, yeah, I know you're absolutely right. It's it's a bad. They're in a bad position, and I that country's future. I am not. I don't think it's a rosy outlook. I mean, you know, these kinds of natural disasters are only going to become more frequent. Heat. It's one of the hottest countries on the planet, uh, and that's only going to get worse. So. It, it, how much of Pakistan becomes unlivable in a, in in twenty years, in twenty five years, in fifty years? Uh, it's it's not it's not a good situation. And then then, then a ret- a refugee crisis on the border with a hostile state, India. That is just that is the subcontinent has a lot of simmering conflict that could potentially erupt in very dangerous and unpredictable ways because those people can't, they can't really get to Afghanistan easily. There's a big mountain range. They can't, they can't get to China again, big mountain range. So really it's just onto the floodplain and down into India. And, you know, they left India for a reason. Exactly. Partition. But uh, in addition to Pakistan, there's some other, other interesting news going on right now, Iran. So, not that far away. They uh, seem to love to steal sail drones. Pirates of the Red Pirates Sea. Pirates of the Red Sea and all the, the local bodies of water. And they seem to be continually trying to do this, um, even when they're forced to give them back. So for those uh, little background here, the sail drones, these are just commercial off-the-shelf technology from, from a, uh, a U.S. company who has leased some of these to to the military and they're autonomous and as the name sounds they are look like sailboards 
and they go around autonomously and they have solar panels on them and they basically take unclassified just photos and atmospheric uh, weather data and I believe they can do some some underwater kind of echolocation type stuff. So it's it's interesting that this is how the Iranians are trying to rile up the U.S. Navy um, at a time when we're trying to do a nuclear agreement. I, I assume they think they can get away with it because no one wants to scupper uh, the wider bilateral negotiations. But it to me, it just says how weak they are at sea. When this is their, their thing, we're going to steal the UAV that is just commercial off the shelf. And they get caught doing it constantly. Yeah, twice. Twice in just two days. And they get for, they're forced to release them. And so it's interesting that this is how they try and do that. And, and I'm sure it's for an internal audience. They're doing this like, yes, we we're needling the empire, the evil empire. Um, or needling the apostate. So it's it's interesting. It's I read it actually slightly differently. I think this I know that um at least one, if not both, were Iranian Revolutionary Guard ships. And so I read it as potentially hardline uh Iranian Guard Corp forces trying to exert influence over nuclear negotiations. Um, suggesting to me there's some internal divisions within the Iranian government about how these negotiations are proceeding. I could see that as as a potential logic that you're right, it is for an internal audience for internal consumption, but I, I think there could be a political angle to this, uh, given that it's happening against the backdrop of continued Iranian nuclear deal negotiations. So, uh, but yeah, foolish, certainly to us, it, it I, did you watch the video uh, that the Iranian uh, the Iranian Navy released? The, their video of it they, they, they looked com it looked comical. It looked yes, just silly. Like, we removed this for it was a navigational hazard, and we're protecting the waterway. I think was in essence the translation. Um, it does look foolish when it's a tiny little dinky little drone that they somehow think is going to be a hazard. But I think you're right. I think this is probably some internal schism. I remember, and I'm not going to get the details correct, but we've had, every time we've had bilateral negotiations with Iran over, over many different subjects from the uh, embassy hostage crisis, different factions within the government, usually the more conservative groups, try and throw a wrench into things to that this doesn't you know interacting with the 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 devil doesn't suit their political narrative right and so that causes problems for i think the more moderate groups internally and i think it causes probably never ending headaches for the western negotiators who uh, think they have a deal and then they're negotiating in good faith with somebody who can make decisions when something behind the scenes occurs that uh, they have no control over and it feels like you're back to step, step one. So that's 
classic tactic. And we'll see. I mean, I don't know the details of the of the kind of current nuclear negotiations and what that would look like. But we will talk about it at some point in the future when we have more detail and we know what's going to happen. Thanks for listening to Armchair Generals. We'll be back next week with more. 